welcome to Counterpressed on the Ringer and Spotify. We're back. It's season two. Feels like we've been away for ages. I'm in the studio with Jilly Flatty and Jesse Parker Humphreys. Jilly, I feel like I haven't seen you in forever. I know. Did you miss me? Missed you so much. Missed this face. <laughs> <laughs> Very tanned as well because you've been on holiday. Yeah. It's wow. the, the makeup I've not took off from uh, Sky last week. <laughs> yeah, we have been. It feels like we have been away for a while because obviously we stopped after the World Cup. Jesse and I's rather depressing uh, finale episode, which if you want to go back and listen to it, please do. But the one we recorded accidentally outside Spain's victory hotel. Yeah, we don't. We don't have to revisit. We that don't. Re- now. But there, and there no. was someone making out next to us. It was just so strange. It was a strange end to the World Cup. <laughs> but what a summer! What a World Cup! Julie, you were here doing bits and pieces, booked and busy as always, yeah. doing comms. A lot of counterpresses has probably heard you doing comms on some of the World Cup. Then you were doing Arsenal Champions League. Yeah. So you know you've had a great summer, and I enjoyed it because I didn't really do any of the England games. So. Not that I enjoyed it because I didn't cover England, but I enjoyed it <laughs> because... Famous England hater. <laughs> You're not going to say that on air. Um, it gave me a chance to really look at a lot of other teams yeah. and look at a lot of players that are coming into WSL as well, which I really... Um, I did enjoy that side of it. But yeah, I did watch... Well, I worked on the Arsenal Champions League um, games, which unfortunately, obviously they didn't get through. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a good summer. That's a great segue to say that we are going to be doing a bit of a WSL preview on today's show. Going to be talking about a few predictions because Kate in our group chat uh, said that she wanted to do more predictions on the show. So you're not here, Kate, but we're going to do more predictions. <laughs> so we're like, we'll do them without you. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're just going to talk about a few of our, uh, you know, teams that we think might win the league, might get, Champions League qualification might win the Conti Cup, might win the FA Cup, and obviously one team has to get relegated. So we'll also talk about that. But uh, it's an international break, of course. So we're going to touch on England's game against Scotland on Friday, as well as touching on the latest with Spain, which is quite hard to keep up with because there's every day there's a new update of chaos. But I thought I'd do a sort of recap and a little discussion of where we're at as of. Monday, the 25th of September, <laughs> which is, yeah, it's hard to keep track. Julie, have you been keeping track of the latest on Spain? I feel like it changes every five minutes, but... Yeah, well, on Twitter, I didn't realise that there's a, um, a thing which is like people that you follow and then there's the for you, which is a lot of... Did you know that bit? Yeah? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Am I really far behind? You're like, really Julie, we live on the internet. You have to understand this. <laughs> but it was Julie's like... just discovered how Twitter works. <laughs> if I wanted to know about Spain, I just went on to the for you because a lot of people were obviously talking about it. But that's where I felt I get my, I got my changes from. But yeah, I'm just I'm as confused really of where where it currently is standing. Well, don't worry. Hope for it. Hopefully there'll be you know a bit of an education later in the show, which I'm going to try and deliver. Um, I also want us to talk about Megan Rapinoe's retirement, which was sort of all over Twitter over the past 24 hours. Might have been um, on your For You page. That wasn't me. That wasn't my For You page. <laughs> the algorithm's doing what it should be doing. It should be there. Um, so let's get stuck into it after this. England, Scotland, guys, Friday night under the lights at the Stadium of Light. Wow, that kind of worked. Um, 
England beating Scotland 2-1. First ever Nations League game. New competition in women's football that will uh, have an impact on Olympic and Euros qualification. I think it's really exciting to have the Nations League. Are we all... I love Up on the, the Nations, Nations League. League. Yes. I love it. Pro Nations League. Good. Glad yeah. we got out of the way. Who was saying this other day? I think it was Musa on Wrighty's House was saying, or maybe it was Carl, I can't remember who was saying, the Nations League is the best thing that UEFA have probably ever done uh, for international football. And I have to kind of agree. I think uh, everyone was very sceptical when they created the competition, but I do think it's just created a nice I new want level. some merch. You want I don't Nations know League if you're making merch, but I want like a Nations League bucket hat or something like that. Not you just hat. love bucket hats. No, though. I actually don't because bucket hats, I, they really don't suit me. <laughs> I really don't look good in them. Um, I look like a stupid like pansy or something. Um, <laughs> oh, like Bill and Ben and the Flower Pot yeah, Men Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nations League cap, maybe. Okay. Maybe we could do like a counter-pressed Women's Nations League collab merch. Sure. This is a business idea, here. Yeah. Jilly, yeah. no. my, my, my eyes are going mad. Yeah. My As CFO of Counterpress. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great chance for us to set up merchandise. Cool. Yeah, you've always got a new business idea, yeah. so that can be one. Uh, anyway, England beating Scotland in that first Nations <laughs> I've League game. I've got this image of Jilly <laughs> flogging Nations League bucket hats outside WSL grounds <laughs> from a van this yeah, season. Like, I have the van. I get, the van. Get your scarves, get your bucket hats, fly <laughs> That would be you. I'm sorry for a pound. But it's all like, it's really unlicensed knockoff black market like, stuff. Instead of UA for spelt properly, it's UFA. Yeah. <laughs> and then you just see Jilly running down the street because there's police like, oh, you can't sell that here. And she's like, what? Um, yes, but England did win the game. We were saying before we started recording today that it wasn't a classic. Jilly, you were covering it on Sky. I was watching it at home with a delicious curry. Jesse, you were watching at home? Yeah, taking it all in. A couple of gin and tonics. Just a great night all round for Amazing. us all. But I think it wasn't one for the ages. I really liked England's goals. I will say that. I thought they were very creative. I like what they were doing there, basically doing the same thing twice, and it worked. But I do think overall, Scotland can maybe feel a bit aggrieved that they didn't get a point from the game in the little Nations League. Uh, table and definitely should have had a penalty for Millie Bright on Martha Thomas and the iconic Martha Thomas. That's embarrassing, which it was. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what your guys' takes on it was, but I do feel, I wouldn't say disappointed, but a bit sort of like, hmm, this comeback from the World Cup could be a bit of a hangover, which is okay. They got to a World Cup final and that's sort of what matters, but in regards to Olympic qualification, England do need to do well if that's going to be a priority for Serena Wigman's team. And I do think that when teams sit off England because of the the respect that they've now earned in regards to the Euro, winning the Euros, I think when teams sit off England, it's happy days for England. You know, they've got all the lovely, comfortable possession and they're able to whip balls into the box. And yeah, I think England goals were really good. But I worried at first for Scotland because I thought if you sit any deeper, you're literally going to be on your goal line and you're just allowing England to control the game and control the momentum. And then I think the the moment, well, the last 10 and 15 minutes or so of the first half, when Scotland decided to go on the front foot and press, they got the joy. And obviously then they got the the goal, which was coming from Mary Ertz playing the ball to Alex Greenwood, who didn't want the ball there. But it come from Scotland pressing high. And I think in the second half... Scotland just sort of threw the respect out the window and started pressing England. And that's what worries me, I think, with England is 
they don't know what to do when a team presses them or they still want to play the same way with or without the pressure. And if you're getting pressed, you, you have to do things a lot quicker and you might not necessarily be able to play the pass that you want to do when you ain't got that that pressure on you. Um, and that's what I think was the difference. But I wonder now if Scotland feel a little bit like what would have happened if we'd maybe started the game like that. And Ian Wright said it on ITV. Yeah, you've got the risk of you going and you getting played around and you potentially losing three or four nil, but then you've got to look at the spin of it and what happens if it does work? You could have been 2-2 two, two going in at half time because you decided to press a lot earlier. So I feel it was just a tell to ask for me, really. Yeah, and I think you're right. When you do think about a lot of the goals that England have conceded over the past sort of year, thinking about that USA game at Wembley, where was it? Stanway got pressed, lost the ball. USA get that goal. Obviously, the World Cup final, Lucy Bronze. Like it's an area of a weakness for them. But obviously, like if you do turn over the ball, there's a high chance that the opposition are going to score if they're especially a good team. But I do think it's that like under pressure element, like you say, that they seem hard to adjust to when they're not in control, when they can't kind of set the tone and the pace of the game, and then they almost get quite nervy on the ball, quite rushed. And they just get sloppy in general. And then it's like they can't even hold possession because everything kind of seems out of joint. The role the number 10 has played in Wiegmann systems, whether it's with the back three or with the back four, it feels like that position has never quite solidified into Wiegmann system, regardless of who's playing there. Obviously, Kirby played there for the Euros. We've had Toon and James play there in Kirby's absence. And I think all three of those players have been justifiably accused at points of like disappearing from England's games. And I think all three of them are very, very good players. And I think maybe that tells us something about how the way that role I think has been thought of, regardless of what's going on behind it, feels like maybe there's something missing there in terms of giving that midfield the support so that when you are being pressed, you've got that extra player there. And I thought actually it's Ella Toon did at points uh, later in the World Cup when James was obviously suspended, do that quite well, almost dropping and being more of an eight. But I feel like sometimes the gap between whoever's playing as, as a holding midfielder, obviously that's normally Walsh. And I do think, as much as I thought Zellum had a good game, I thought England missed Walsh. And I think that's a big part of the control element yeah, I was in gonna, this Scotland game. I was going to say missing Walsh is a huge factor in that because she would be the out ball. She would be the person that can give you that safety net and you can trust on the ball to get you out of sticky situations. And even though Zellum had that wonderful assist, I think she was not great under pressure. I think she made quite a few mistakes. It's not quite what she does. Yeah, you know, like yeah. if you think about her in that United team, she's playing alongside Hayley Ladd, who's actually going to take on almost more of that defensive responsibility and give Zellum the freedom to go forward. When you're then playing with Stanway and James, both of whom you could argue are more like tens. I know Stanway does the eight role quite well, but then it does feel like there's a lot of pressure being put on that sort of one pivot player. And I do think that's, also then becomes a problem with England's wing-backs in specifically this system. It's obviously what you see a lot of the time, whether with a back four or back three, is one of those players might um, invert. You know, that's like a very trendy thing in football at the moment that you have, like, and they give that defensive support, especially to a more creative holding player. I just don't think England have natural wing-backs or even necessarily physically adept full-backs at this point to provide that support. So whether you've got bronze and daily or obviously we saw Chloe Kelly start in that role like I'm really surprised we haven't seen Lauren Hemp 
play that role because she can't, that's actually more what she does for City. Well, points. that's what we wanted in the World Cup, didn't we? When we saw Daly struggling in that left wing-back role, we were talking about Hemp is actually very good defensively. She's very good physically. She's good on the ball. She is someone that could slot quite nicely into that left wing-back role. And I wonder if, you know, it's only a matter of time before we see... Beekman try that? When Kelly came off, it wasn't Hemp that went to left wing back. It was Rachel Daly. And James played in a front two with Lauren Hemp. So that, to me, felt like the obvious point to try it. But I wonder if when Daly, you know, maybe does get another chance at nine and obviously Russo's getting extra rest and you would expect what he's going to play in that Netherlands game. But with Beth England being out for the long term after a hip operation, they don't have tons of options in that position. And I wonder if Daly does get another opportunity at nine, then Hemp could slot in in that left wing back role. But Vigman, when she finds something she likes, she really does stick to it. And I feel like the back three and the Hemp and Russo partnership, which worked quite well in the World Cup, I feel like that's her vision now. And she doesn't want to stray from it unless she has to, if it's rest or it's injury. Um and she can get a little bit stubborn with how she manages that team. Um, but Daly, although I think she she played well, um, I think she still feels like, because it's not an actual position, like and Bronze, I think, like those are the two weak links in that team. And it's weird that she's not trying to sort of like problem solve and figure it out, but is then trying to come up with solutions to protect those weaknesses rather than just play someone who might be better in those roles. Do you know what I mean? But I also think as well with the wing backs, I mean, England looks so exposed when Bronze and Kelly go forward in that game and they turn the ball over because their back three was isolated and Percy Hansen was literally having the time of her life on the, on the in the wide area. And if potentially it would have been better decision-making or better balls in or, I don't know, better strikers or more bodies in the box, England would have been punished for it because... She was getting so much joy down there. So it's that risk of, I mean, obviously I played in the wing-back position at Chelsea. Not wing-back. Actually, I didn't play wing-back, but I mean, I played in the back three when I was, say, alongside... I would love to see a Jimmy Flanton <laughs> play wing-back. Actually, you might remember that I did play there against uh, Wolfsburg in the semi-final Champions League and I got destroyed and took off. <laughs> Anyways, I won't really Great that moment. moment. But I've played there with, say, for example, Hannah Blundell, who for me is one of the best at it. She's got the engine to go up and down. But sometimes that's the problem when you play with a player, maybe like Bronze now, who's later on in her career, and she's got the engine she wants to go, but the recovery might not be as quick as what it used to be. And there's, I think, one of the chances where Percy Hansen got the ball and she whipped the ball in, but Katie Zellum is trying so hard to get back, to get over to Hanson. Jess Carter never come out to put pressure on Hanson. She stayed in as the free. And then Hanson was just allowed to whip the ball in and Martha Thomas was centimetres away from getting the towel on the end of it. And I just think against better teams, those wide areas will get exploited. Like you cannot play Chloe Kelly in a wing-back position mm. against a better team because they're going to just target those areas. So I think if you had... I feel a, like that's an experiment she's probably not going to go back to. Yeah, but I think it worked in the World Cup in regards to... The, I like the three at the back because mm. I think for me... But the Chloe Kelly, I mean. I think yeah. three at the back still works. But that's what I mean. It's, it's knowing then if you want to play that formation, then you really have to make yeah, sure got, the two wing-backs you've got, you've the got right in there, there. Yeah, are the yeah. right players and are players who can do that job. Like Hannah Blundell is, is never really getting a look in, but... Why isn't she? If but you want to play that and formation. And there's also a player like Neve Charles who has played at wing back for Chelsea, like repeatedly. Yeah. There are players in the squad who are doing that on a more regular basis at 
yeah. club level if you want. But I think also there's still this sense of like the balance isn't quite right. Because I think even that example there where you're talking about Katie Zellum going out and Jess Carter not coming, you'd think the advantage of having the back three, especially with players like Carter and Greenwood, both of whom have played at fullback, mm. would be that you can sort of rotate it. Right. And we but saw that more in the World Cup. That was, we saw a lot, right? Carter came and covered for bronze because she's really, really fast. So yeah. she was able to cover that space that bronze was leaving in a lot of games. Look, they're coming off the back of this crazy World Cup. They've all gone back to their clubs for two weeks. And then suddenly you're back with England again, playing two games. And then the WSL kicks off at the end of this week. Like there's a lot going on. So I think to that extent, maybe the like tactical tweaks, you have to sort of forgive a little bit. Um, But yeah, it definitely felt like the balance as much as the personnel like also wasn't quite right. A hundred percent. And Gilly, I know you started by talking about the way that England sort of when they deal with pressure, but I also think there's always been an issue in this. If you play two players, whether it's Daly or Kelly on the left and bronze on the right or Daly on the right, you're always going to have this issue where you've got players who are have such an attacking, aggressive mindset. I do think they take far too many risks and they get exposed. And obviously that's kind of the point of playing wing backs because you've got the back three as the protection. But I still sometimes watch through my hands when I'm like, you don't need to take that many risks. And we were talking about before we came on about like sometimes it's the decisions that you make when, you, you know, what, how are you going to play the ball out that you don't need to do certain things, which I feel like when England play with those super attacking, super aggressive fullbacks, they end up making more stakes, obviously, because like more risk, more reward. But then I also just think the way, the style in which they play with, I think can be sloppy uh, when it doesn't necessarily need to be. And I think that creeps in because it's so like, you know, we're going to play hard and use the width and bomb forward and try and get balls in. But it's like, if you don't have the quality there to follow through, then everything kind of falls down and you're going to be making your back three work so hard and that's why Jess Carter was kind of like, you know, one of England's best players in the World Cup because she was busy <laughs> always. But, you know, it's England's first game in the Nations League. They won. So I don't think we need to sort of pick it apart too intensely. I think Scotland's a lot of credit. I haven't been massively uh, into the Pedro era. I think some fans were a bit surprised to see him get a new contract. They've had good results, which is important for Scotland. I don't think a lot of the performances have been tremendous, but I did think they played really well. Kirsty Hansen, phenomenal again on Friday night. And, you know, she's a player that I think so many teams would love to have because she's so aggressive, so intense and has legs for days. Like her endurance and her fitness levels are She's like a rugby player. That's what I felt like when I was watching her with the ball. It feels like she's just so like head down and go. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think Villa have done really well to keep hold of her. And England will now play Netherlands on Tuesday away before the WSL kicks off on the weekend. So, yeah, it is non-stop. I think that's going to be an interesting game. Obviously, Belgium beat the Netherlands. I was going to say, I think Belgium have done England a big favour here. I mean, I don't, yeah, England, I don't think looked amazing against Scotland, but I also think, yeah, Scotland were good. And I think England did well to hold on to the win. But probably the best thing that could have happened to England was that Belgium got that win. I mean, maybe that means that Netherlands really have loads to play for in this away game. But it just feels like it gives you that early advantage over the team who you look in that group and say would have been the obvious other threat to topping it. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Let's touch on the ongoing issue in Spain around the Spanish national team. A lot of people would have seen the latest stuff on Twitter and kept tabs on it since the World Cup. Obviously... 
What happened to Jenny Hermoso at the World Cup was absolutely horrendous and the aftermath has just been utterly insane and extremely chaotic and the way that the RFEF have handled it I don't think could have been any worse. It's kind of like a car crash of publicity, of bad governance, of everything. Where we are now, well, they played Sweden in the Nations League game. That game happened. There was one point where it seemed like that game might not happen because around, what was it, 30 or so players all signed a letter saying that they didn't want to be called up for the national team. The only players from the World Cup squad that didn't sign that letter was Claudia Zonosa, who retired. and To become team- a police officer. <laughs> no comment. And uh, Athenia Del Castillo, who didn't sign it as well. <clears throat> no comment. The majority of the squad, as well as other players who weren't in the World Cup squad, said, we don't want to be selected. They got selected anyway by Monsatome, who's come in as the head coach, who was Jorge Villa's assistant, who's now gone. And it was the most bizarre press conference of all time in which she announced her first squad. Really strange questions. Jenny Himoso wasn't included and the line was that they were trying to protect her. She then came out saying, you know, I don't know anything about this and it's you know, they, they're not trying to protect me, etc. It's been a very bizarre window in which we've obviously seen Jorge Vilda go just before the window. Louis Rubales get sacked, uh, as well as the general secretary also go. The conversation's still all going. Mappy and Patry got called up, then left not long after because they certainly didn't want to be involved and they weren't involved in the World Cup. Every single moment is just clips of players speaking about how drained and exhausted they are and how they're tired of all this. They've gone to the RFEF for demands about changes, restructuring and uh, the behaviour of officials and how that needs to change, but they don't feel like they've had any serious assurances and they want written assurances. So the window goes on, the international window goes on, that squad is still there, they're playing. But Jilly, it's been, I think, bizarre to watch um, because at every turn there's just a more kind of frustrating and astounding decision that happens. It's It got to kind of like an unbelievable point really with how these players were being treated. I know last season we spoke to you about when you were at West Ham and you had to kind of like come together with the squad and speak to the club about certain things. Obviously, I know the situation is a bit different, but what is the drain and the impact that this sort of thing has on a player? Because I think it is incredible to see what these players are having to go through and then go and play in a match against Sweden and kind of block it out when they are really being like tormented all day with the behaviour of their federation before, during and after this World Cup victory. Yeah, I mean, obviously my situation with West Ham was, I mean, it was behind closed doors. And for me as being a captain there, it was yeah, it was awful because I was obviously going home and I was then stressing about stuff at home and I was just bringing it home with me and I felt a lot of responsibility was on me. How long did it go on for what you were doing? Oh, it was only with? like, I'd say not even a week. <laughs> 
<laughs> These guys have been doing it for like over yeah. a year now. And it was behind closed doors. So yeah. I can't imagine what they're going through. The fact of that is, I mean, I was on holiday in Spain and it was on the TVs everywhere. Like yeah. in every bar that we was in, everywhere it was on there. The Spanish news coverage has been wild. I was saying in the group chat, it's almost like TMZ if you've ever seen that in the States. The way there's just like cameras and a microphone in yeah. people's faces constantly. Like it was if it, they were showing it and it was on there constantly like as if it was like a murder. Do you know what I mean? Like as in how we see it over, mm. how we'd see it over here. But it, it must be so draining for them because it's not just straightforward. It's not like, right, these are what we want to change. Let's go and change it. They're just getting, not mugged off, but it's just constant the Federation will do something which is completely against what they're fighting for. The best thing, like, personally for me that's come out of this, right, is the amount of people that I've been able to unfriend on social media, right? Because, <laughs> you cleansed your timeline. Yeah, because of this situation, because this has happened, and I think when it first come out about the kiss and that, the incident, and then I don't know if you see it, but, like, the, a couple of days later, the jockey the owner, a, a woman who owned this jockey, uh, owned this hole, sorry, and it it won. And she kissed, she grabbed oh, the did, jockey. I did yeah, briefly yeah, see yeah. this. Yeah. yeah, so someone on my, well, used to be on my friend's list on Facebook, <laughs> put it up, right? And was the thingy was like, well, why is that any different to mm. what the man's done in the, in the Spanish FA? And I'm just like, I was typing something out and I was like, why am I wasting my breath on someone like you? It's all I just did. I mean, I just unfriended them. But it, you really saw a lot of people's true... People showed themselves. Yeah, true colours. I'm thought only there was amazed that you're still using Facebook. <laughs> only for Marketplace. <laughs> Any deals? You'll get some juicy, juicy deals. Yeah. But it was, and, the, and the worrying thing was this person had been involved in women's football. And I'm like, that's what's mm. even more worrying is that you think that's okay to do that. Well, that's what I was going to say to you as well because I think the behind-closed-doors point is important because... This is what we are seeing. Obviously, there's things we hear which never come out, but there's also a lot that very few people will ever hear. Even if you work in the media, even if you work in football or you currently play in football, you're a coach or whatever. There is so much darkness still behind the scenes. This is what we're getting to see and hear about. And that's kind of the most terrifying thing is if this is what people are doing in the cold light of day, then what is yet to still be uncovered, like, you know, that we're never going to see? And I think that's what really kind of is is terrifying about the state that we're still in, in women's football. It's like the world champions are getting treated like this and this is the reality for them. What other women are going through across the game who are just fighting for the bare minimum in their setups is just like astounding and quite depressing and bleak, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. I think it's obviously shone a light on the inequalities that are still seen across women's football. But I think we said it even before and during the World Cup, this stuff is always there and, and always going on. And I think in some ways it feels frustrating that only Rubiales's own actions really created this sort of media storm 100%. around something that the Spanish national team had effectively been whistleblowing on for months already. And it's just crazy to think if Rubiales doesn't do that, does any of what they were trying to draw attention get paid any attention to? It's frustrating on a number of accounts, I think. It's frustrating that players have to end up basically being mini politicians when they should be celebrating the fact that they basically achieved the best thing you can achieve in football in terms of winning a World Cup and 
you know, they're out and about doing non-stop press conferences effectively, you know, about not just the sort of state of the Spanish Federation, but also what it says about, you know, the society we live in generally. Um, and yeah, like that, this is a situation that's being replicated like across the world. We saw that um, before the World Cup in terms of lots of the frustrations that teams had with their federations there. I guess you just hope that this is like the point whereby they get to like wipe the slate clean, but it doesn't even look like that's going to happen because you just look at the appointment of Tome and, you know, who knows if she'll stay in the job after this international break. There were, there was unconfirmed reports that she was going to stand down, but it just, it's, it it's so seem, unclear right It doesn't now. seem very likely, I don't think, that she'll carry on because she's clearly incredibly unpopular. <laughs> um, but, you know, even that speaks to it. Like they can't even use getting rid of Vilda as an opportunity to sort of start something new and like there are so many talented coaches in and around Spain at the moment who they could look to um but yeah I guess you hope moving forward that they they get to wrap this up at some point and they get to sort of enjoy playing football again it's crazy like you say to think about the sliding doors situation of if Rubiales hadn't done what he'd done at the ceremony would they be in this position and would this whole sort of like purge be happening and it has to go so deep and that's why it's obviously so tough for them as players and it's sort of like it's such an embedded cultural thing that it's not it can't be fixed through a few people stepping down it's like a a whole restructure which is what they're calling for but to take on any federation is a big challenge but then to say like we want the whole thing to be structured is an incredible ambition and hopefully they get that chance to celebrate. We were talking about it on Righty's House and Musa made the point that like this should be a victory lap. This should be a victory tour. They should be drinking it in. You mind like the, when the US have won things in the past, they'll do a whole year of victory games where fans can come out and see the team that just won World Cup. To be fair, the US are normally fighting with their federation while they do that. So Very true. <laughs> Good point. This just feels so sour and yeah just bleak but obviously as things go we'll keep everyone updated speaking of mini politicians though Megan Rapinoe has retired I mean that's a compliment I don't mean that in a salty way um and I think it was very emotional I think she's someone who has been an amazing idol for the game. She is uh, obviously a a tremendous activist, a great speaker, has always sort of fought for various issues across the game, a key part in the USA's dispute with their federation, a tremendous entertainer, uh, a great footballer, but then also had this kind of villain persona as well, whether it's um, you know, the rivalry between Portland and Rain and, and the role that she played in that or just, you know, her role in the USA and being that kind of villain character. But I think it is sad to see her go because she is such a big character in the game. And I think football will really miss having someone like her, like the clothes, the hair, everything, you know, the press conferences. Football needs stars like that. And I just hope that... Someone could come. I mean, I think there are people taking up that role, but I think she's someone that kind of really filled that. Um, Julie, is it weird for you to see those players that are, you know, of a similar generation to you or like who were kind of idols as well hang up their boots? Megan Rapinoe must be quite a lot older. Than no, she just is. Like she's a little bit <laughs> older. No, I know than she me. is, but you know, playing at the same time. She yeah, was yeah. playing, you know, the same time as you. I'll, I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> same. Close, <laughs> same. <laughs> no, I think it is. And I think like one of my friends actually went out there 
to the game and videoed, obviously, uh, saying goodbye to the rest of the team and then coming off. And I think it is. And I think everyone was, like, choked up and that. And I think when they say about retiring and they say, like, about when you retire, you want to leave the shirt in a better place than when you found it. And she can certainly say she's done that. And she fought for a lot, you know, and she took a lot of slack and made a lot of people hate her for what she's done. But what she's done for the women's game especially in America, and what she's won for many, many players to come through who, because of her standing up and her fighting for things and becoming a villain with a lot of people, especially men, who didn't agree with the equal pay fight that they had, she's left the shirt in a better place. And obviously you're talking about footballing-wise, obviously she's achieved a lot with, with the USA and in the NWSL. But yeah, I think it is it is a shame to see players like her retire, but... Like I said, she knows she's left the shirt in a better place and she's a villain to some people, but to a lot of people, she's a hero because of what she's achieved for him. And at the final game, iconic kiss between Megan Rapinoe and her fiancé Sue Bird. And who doesn't love a gay kiss on primetime? Uh, yeah, the someone put together on Twitter, uh, maybe it was on my For You page, I don't know. <laughs> uh, this is the kind Great of content, that. This is the, kind of content the algorithm Can gives you tag me, me in it, please. <laughs> <laughs> was... Um, Rapino giving Sue Bird a kiss at her final basketball Aww, game, and then they put it with so that one. Oh, very cute. Um, yeah, but I think also as well, like I kind of hope for Rapino's sake that as much as like what she's done politically and off the pitch has been amazing, is like what she achieved as a footballer. Yeah. And I think it's very easy to kind of forget, you know, what an incredible role she had in so much of the US success and I think you know especially in 2019 to be oh god how old was she then you know 34 35 I think around then um and like go to that world cup and be the star you know at a time when always the excitement is to look for the younger the newer players isn't it at those tournaments like who's going to be the breakout star but to have like such an important role in that win on top of everything she did for the previous world cups the olympic gold medals yeah just like a fantastic footballer to watch and some of the crosses and balls into the box she could put in her penalty taking although obviously you know she went out on a bit of a low on that one but um yeah like a real joy to watch on the football pitch as well as off yeah and like you say she played a key role in some of those big big moments for the US in World Cup and Olympic Games and she deserves a lot of credit and I think she did say after her final game on the mic that you know, this won't be the last you see of me. So it'll be interesting to see the role that she can still play either in US soccer. She's obviously at that kind of high elite level where I don't see her being on TV as a pundit. I feel like what she's got planned is going to be a lot bigger, whether that's like team ownership or something like that. And obviously her and Sue Bird are such a power couple that I think together it's going to be really exciting for what they can achieve in women's sport. WSL returns this weekend, guys. So... Let's do a little bit of a preview next. So on Thursday's show, we're going to get stuck into a bit of the transfer window and talk about which teams had a good and bad transfer window. So I want to save that for Thursday's show. We're going to have a bit of fun with it as well. So for now, looking ahead to the opening weekend... I want to do some predictions because it has been a very long and very busy summer, especially for a lot of teams. Um, there's been some big movements. Obviously, we'll kind of get into the nitty gritty of that on Thursday's show. But for you guys, I want to start with 
predictions for who you think is going to win the WSL this season. Jesse, coming in hats. As a Chelsea fan, I, you know, I, I know it's been a it's been a pretty good summer for you guys. Four in a row now. It does feel silly at this point to bet against Chelsea. Although I do every year bet against Chelsea and then they win. So you are always I think like way I too pessimistic for me. I think with Chelsea, it always comes down to how well they do in the Champions League because everyone knows that that is going to be what Hayes and the team prioritise until they're out of it. And then once they're out of it, they'll go for the WSL. And I think they've shown that they can compete broadly on two fronts. But for example, if Chelsea beat Barcelona in the semi-final last season, I don't necessarily think they go on to win the league because the focus would have been on preparing for the final. And I think, you know, equally, same thing will happen this year. I think Chelsea will be there and thereabouts, but I definitely think there's an opening for a team who's not in the Champions League, Arsenal or City, potentially, obviously United. They might not have Champions League football depending on how that game goes against PSG. I think any of those teams should feel like they should be going to win the league at this point because I do think it's kind of ridiculous that Chelsea have won four in a row. Um, I think the worry for those teams will be, I do think, ironically almost, that Chelsea's squad is in the strongest place it's been in a really, really long time. And I think they're better placed to fight on two fronts than they have been in the past. So yeah, maybe I'll say Chelsea will win it. There we go. I've talked myself into it. Five in a row, let's do it. Julie, what are you thinking? I don't want to sound like a parrot, but I want to echo everything Jesse said in the sense of I think Chelsea's squad is just the strongest out of all of them. Mm. Um, but I do think being in the position where I've had Champions League and when I've not had Champions League, it does help a lot. And I do think it helped Chelsea last year not, or when they come out, that they could then focus solely on the WSL. So in that sense, really, you'd look at City and Arsenal. And I also think... Not that there's not pressure on Chelsea because I think playing for Chelsea gives you pressure anyway to bring trophies home. But I think there is more pressure on Arsenal and City and also United. Obviously, United, are, they've been banging on about getting in the Champions League and now you've got it. So now you're in the Champions League. Now it's how well do you perform in that? Um, but yeah, I think there is pressure a lot on Man City and Arsenal for what they... Obviously, even though Arsenal won the trophy last year, Continental Cup, there's there's more pressure on them to go and deliver now because especially Arsenal, when you've been knocked out of the pre-qualifiers, which you should have really got through, especially with your squad, there's still a huge part of me that thinks Chelsea will win it because I just think... It's just in their nature, like their, their blood, like, do you know what I mean? We are going to win the WSL, but... I do think there will be a good chance for Arsenal City without having the added pressure of Champions League. Yeah, I think Chelsea edge it for me because of that experience and the way that they've done it. They know how to do it. And I think with the experience of Emma as the coach and what they've been through as a group, and I think that having that spine of the team that's been there so long now together, obviously I think they've had a very good transfer window to bring new recruits in who I think will blend quite nicely into the team. We've already seen that in some of the preseason performances. But I think the spine and foundation of the team is still so strong to have that many players who've played as a group and played very well as a group and you know you can rely on them and then have the added depth for the cup competitions and the Champions League. I just still think they are so much the finished product. And I just feel like 
they will edge it again. And I think every other team is on this constant battle of being endlessly in a transition phase with their squad. And I think that just always works against them. The United have had a difficult summer with departures, spent lots of money, but I think that will take time to blend. I think either way, Europe kind of will become an issue because I think if they do get through to the group stages, then they're going to struggle to manage that extra demand on the team. And then I think if they don't go through, I think that's going to add a huge pressure on them to win something this season. Um, and then City, I think City are always in with a shout, but I think how they manage the season is always difficult. I think out of those coaches, Taylor's probably the weakest. Um, and I think Arsenal now, there is so much pressure on them because they didn't get through to the group stage of the Champions League. And I think that might just kind of come down on top of them a little bit. So for me, it just always is Chelsea, just because you look at that CV and, and you can't, you can't doubt what they've they've done and I just think they'll just do it again. That brings me on to the Champions League places though because we obviously have to go really four into three. I do think Arsenal probably will get Champions League and I do think Manchester City will get Champions League. And for me, Manchester United are the team that will miss out this season. But I think it's going to be tight. I mean, I think it's going to be tight now. Um indefinitely for seasons to come. But I think the top three for me looks like Chelsea, Arsenal, City. I don't know if anyone disagrees with that I prediction. think I would agree. But again, I think it kind of depends on United yeah, and whether factors. they get into the group stage. Because I do think we saw last season that I think Skinner's weakness comes when he's forced to rotate his team. And I think if they're in the Champions League group stages they will have to do that. And, you know, this is a team that didn't even get out of the Conti Cup group stages last year, which I think tells you everything you need to know maybe about how well he was able to move his ideas from his first choice starting 11 into a, a more rotated one. I think if he's got the opportunity again just to play that that same team, even without Batia and Russo, I still think they'd have a pretty good chance. One thing that I think will be interesting is maybe teams sort of freaking out a bit about where they finish in that top three because we've always talked about of being like you just get Champions League but you know we're now in a position whereby in none of these um, group stage you know ever since they rejigged the Champions League format have all three English teams made it through to that point so obviously City have gone out twice at different points in those qualifying. And now Arsenal have gone out as well. And it's, it's possible that Chelsea are the only English representative. And I do wonder if that will start to change teams' focus away from being like, oh, you know, like we just, just got to make third or whatever. And to suddenly being like, no, like we need to get second or first. Because otherwise, you, you know, the psychological like madness at the end of last season when Arsenal and City were fighting out for third place, only for Arsenal to not be in the Champions League. Like... I was writing. For what? For I was what? writing a preview <laughs> for Arsenal, and I was literally like, you know, they did really well to manage to finish third, like basically in the second to last game of the season. But it doesn't mean it's anything. Meaningless. <laughs> so yeah, I think that'll be really interesting to see if that is something that that teams like freak out a bit more about. Yeah, and then also you've got the added stress of sort of like the coefficient with the Champions League that... I don't even... really think that matters. We're way behind well, obviously Spain you and can't... we're way ahead of... But also it means sort of like, regardless, you might not get an automatic 
place even if you do win the league do you know what I mean and that's oh yeah so it's like even if they do win the league they might not still get so they've always got these qualifiers of how you owe them like this scary ghost um any Champions League uh disagreements for you Gilly on who you think's going to make it or would you say that City and Arsenal is a fairly and, and obviously Chelsea if that prediction's true on victory but yeah, I just, I mean, I just think a lot can go on in the season as well. Um, and there's obviously with the different the FA Cup, the Conti Cup, internationals as well. You know, there's a lot of players in those top four teams who have just come back off a World Cup. You know, and I think then some of them going straight into Champions League. Like, I think if you you're looking at this time last year. And you think uh, people just come back off the Euros and then come November, December time, there are a lot of serious injuries that happened. I think that can just change. Look at Arsenal. You know, when they then lost Viv and they lost Mead. Like, I that... thought you said they lost me. I was like, wow, <laughs> And Jimmy. they lost me. <laughs> but when they did like lose two players like that, it, at first everyone thought that's their season done and dusted. Like, yeah. And I think that's the thing with the league now, the strength of it as well. A lot of other teams have recruited in and around them. It's not just going to be easy for, the say, the top four to then just go, right, we're going to fight for those three positions because a lot will rely on other teams in that league too. Love the Barclays. Gotta love the Barclays. Um, relegation. Feels like a Bristol City no-brainer. Sorry, Bristol City. What are you thinking, Jilly? I mean, I think Bristol. But again, you wouldn't have thought last year, really. I didn't think last year that Tottenham would have been in down there fighting for it. And I think that's the thing with the, like I just said about the, the top half, a lot will be down on in regards to the bottom half is a lot will determine on other teams too. And I think, yeah, Bristol will be like, a bit like sort of when Leicester come up, they was always down that area. Obviously then Reading obviously went down last year, but I do think it's it's hard. It is really hard for a team to come up from the championship. And the championship is really strong in regards mm. to the teams that are down there, but it is difficult for any team to come up to the WSL. And, you know, I think for Bristol, they just need to try and really get points on board as soon as possible because I think I was in that position with West Ham where the season went on and on and on and we were sitting on like I think like seven or eight points and it's just then it becomes desperation you know and then you got you're coming into the thingy where you need points and you're coming up against teams who are trying to win the league who are just ruthless you know what I mean and they're just like literally tearing you apart and I think for me Bristol will be the probably the candidates as such to go down, the favourites to go down. But I just think they just need to obviously get points on board ASAP. Lest we forget when maternity Matt Beard tried to save the day. Uh, that was a real era. Um, I think suppose as well without Bethany England, it's going to be massive. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to see how they start the season. Jesse, relegation pick? I think West Ham are going. Oh, Ooh. yeah. We forgot about them, didn't we? <laughs> I just think... I'm not convinced. I think they're going to struggle Skinner for sure. Has the ability to make that team look good. I think in terms of recruitment, it's been poor. I saw journalists say, oh, you know, Rahan Skinner came in quite late, so that's why their recruitment's not been very good. I'm thinking she was appointed before the World Cup. Mm. Like, <laughs> I don't know yeah. what what line is being... I was like, this screams line being fed from West Ham because I just think that squad in combination with that manager feels like it could be pretty bleak. And that's, that's not to say West Ham don't have good individual players because I think they do, but it just feels like... Morale was so low by the end of last season. Obviously, Koncheski went 
Lost but, Kate Longhurst, huge. <laughs> Lost Kate Longhurst, so therefore definitely being relegated. <laughs> Kate going to be promoted with Charlton, I'm certain of it. Yeah, I don't know. I I really, really worry for them. And um, who have they got first game of the season? Manchester City. It could be a big opening day. Yeah, I, I think Bristol might be down there as well. And, and I think the thing I worry about for West Ham and Bristol is that I just feel like lots of other teams have strengthened. You know, you look at Brighton, I think they look... Okay, it's one thing to bring the players in. It's another thing to see how they like gel together. But I do think that's like a very, very talented set of players they've brought in. Well, Leicester have had a great summer, I think. Yeah, Leicester have made some good signings. And I think we saw under Kirk that they were becoming a very well-organised team. Spurs, I honestly, I think, I don't think it can be worse than last season, to be totally <laughs> honest. Um, I know Beth England's obviously out for a little bit, but I think they've probably got, the players, depending on how well the, the new manager does, to look decent and just feel like over the past couple of years, we've seen lots of teams be very ambitious. And I think, you know, you can even include Bristol in that to a certain extent in terms of like bucking that trend whereby you go down and you're never seen again, you know, to come back up. I think they've really got something to fight for. And I just look at this West Ham team and I'm just like, it just feels like the club doesn't care about that team. And I think that's a really dangerous position to be in in a league where lots of clubs are putting a lot of focus into the league. Amen. Very quickly, Conti Cup, FA Cup winner predictions. I don't think it's going to be a Chelsea clean sweep. I think City, Conti Cup, because I feel like it's their competition these days. I know they didn't win last season, but it's giving it's giving <laughs> Ma- last year. It's giving Manchester <laughs> City. Won like once in the last five years. <laughs> I know, but I feel like this is, you know, after the epic of Plough Lane, I feel like their time is gonna come again. So I think City Conti Cup, but I think Chelsea FA Cup. So I think it will be a Chelsea double. What are you guys thinking? Well, in terms of pattern. Um, you know, in the way that Chelsea won the three FA Cups by beating Arsenal, City, United, Chelsea have lost the last two Conti Cups, 3-1 to City, 3-1 to Arsenal. So therefore, I think United will beat Chelsea 3-1 in, in the, the Conti Cup, Cup final. final. <laughs> wow, OK. <laughs> um, I hope it doesn't happen. Um, I have said elsewhere, I just prefer for us to like get knocked out in the semi-final this year because no one cares if we go out in the semi-final. I'm fed up of watching us lose Conti Cup finals. Yeah. FA Cup, again, pff, I don't know. It's it's a tough one, and I think from a Chelsea perspective, if they go out the Champions League early, I'd fancy them for it. I wonder if that might be City's. Actually, I'll give that to City. I think they're the team who I feel like are in the best position in terms of having players who I feel like have really started to pick up like lots and lots of experience. I think they're a very settled team, and I think it's a competition that they could go deep in. But all of this stuff depends on the draw. Like you look at last year's FA Cup and Chelsea have to like immediately play Arsenal and knock them out. And then it's like a totally different picture. So I'm going to go for someone different. I'm going to cheer for my old club Liverpool in, I don't think in the Conti Cup, but I fancy him having an FA Cup run. I do. Yeah, I do. To what? Matt Beard likes an FA Cup final. He likes a suit. He likes bringing out the suit. What do we think? Core final, semi-final? Final? No, I'm thinking final, Winning it. it. Yeah, winning it. I'm back in Liverpool this year. Because he's not won one, has he? He's lost two finals. He's lost a final at Chelsea and a final at West Ham. Yeah. Yeah. So So I'm I'm, I'm backing him. I'm backing Liverpool this year to win the FA Cup. Conti Cup, I think it will be a fancy city. I do fancy city. Um... 
But yeah, I'm going Liverpool FA Cup. That'll be one. F- that'll be iconic. A spanner in the works. That'll yeah. be a special I'll, DVD I'll release. That, that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow, epic. Brilliant. Uh, well, yeah, all starts this Sunday. A very exciting slate of games. Arsenal hosting Liverpool at the Emirates. Chelsea Spurs at Stamford Bridge. You're doing the double header, Jesse. Yeah, going straight from the back Emirates to Stamford Bridge. Back. To see if Chelsea can end their opening day of the season curse. No, Julie Flatty to give us a penalty after four minutes this year. So. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Shots from my We still lost the game. <laughs> yeah, Drew, you still won the game, so it's fine. Uh, we're going to be back on Thursday, focusing a bit more on the transfer window ahead of the return of the WSL. So listen on that. And uh, yeah, that's it for our first show back. Good to have us back in the studio. And we'll see you on Thursday. <laughs>